2: The year is
1: 1981 and... The movie Chariots of Fire.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unsold. I'm Amy Nicholson. And
1: I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are looking for the 100 best films of all time. Right now, you are joining us in the middle of our Underdog mini series where we are looking at films about true life sports stories. All of these happened. To what degree? can be argued, but Amy, what an interesting collection of films that we've been doing. I mean, we have really run the gamut in this series more than any other, I, I think, uh, batch of films we've ever done on the show.
2: Wow, is run the gamut a pun on the movie we're about to do?
1: Well, look, I was trying to keep everything to running metaphors today, so yes, you called me out early, <laughs> uh, but, you know, let's just get to the finish line and make sure that we uh, we just stay on track. <laughs>
2: in all of our past miniseries, we have been kind of doing a a low-key thing where we've like looked for a previous AFI movie that got kicked off the 1997 list to include. We didn't do that, but I'm just shocked that Chariots of Fire actually wasn't on the AFI list and got kicked off. Doesn't it seem like the perfect I was on the AFI list
1: and then now I'm not moving? One million percent. I am... I am flabbergasted that this is not on the AFI list, but... wasn't on and kicked off the AFI list. Ooh, right, of course. By the way, I guess the reason for that is because it's not an American film, right? This oh, is like that's the true. Yeah, I mean, this is the first non-American movie since Oliver to win the Best Picture Oscar. So it's that weird thing where it, it is embraced, but it's not fully an American film. And I think we are always wrestling with this.
2: That's interesting that it broke that own little personal race threshold in a movie that's all about, like, an American or a British person hasn't done this since this. We're going to be the first person since then to do that. But I'm was i interested in the fact that they didn't try to push for that um, Lawrence of Arabia loophole in a movie that, to me, and I think we're going to wind up talking about a lot, is Lawrence of Arabia in gym shorts.
1: Well... God, I'd rather that than this. Um, I don't want to give you too much of my opinion on this film too early, but uh, but I think we have an issue with a movie that has its most famous scene in the opening shot. Come on! What else do I have to look forward to if not that? So much so that they play the opening scene at the end as well. That was like when I went to go see... Uh, <laughs> Hard Rock Cafe Live and the, um, and Natalie Imbruglia came out and she opened up with Torn, did another song, and then closed with Torn. Uh, I was like, you know, <laughs> like, you, you, uh, like, I'm here for Torn. I'm here for that. Um, by the way, I do like Natalie Imbruglia um, and, uh, follow her on Instagram, uh, much support to her, but that song was very big, so much so that I didn't mind the sandwich of it at that concert. Uh, I three-
2: appreciate that, Natalie Imbruglia. I appreciate her being like, I know what I'm here for.
1: Yeah, that's what you want to see. I'm going to give it to you. Um, I felt differently about this movie and the way that they sandwiched it. But um, Amy, you want to lace up and... uh, Three, two, a spool! The year is 1981. And Iran releases 52 American hostages who have been held for 444 days. The 3M Corp launches post-it notes. NASA successfully launches its very first space shuttle, Mission Columbia. The first DeLorean, yeah, the DMC-12 sports cars are produced. Muhammad Ali retires with a career record of 55 wins and 5 defeats. Peter Sutcliffe, the uh, Yorkshire Ripper, is caught and imprisoned for life on 13 counts of murder. And the hot films of the year include Raiders of the Lost Ark, 9 to 5, On Golden Pond, and today's film, Chariots of Fire. Amy, who's in it? Who made it? What's it about?
2: Chariots of Fire. It is directed by Hugh Hudson. It is written by Colin Welland, and it was muscled into existence by producer David Putnam, who decided this was the story that he wanted to make exist. Um, it is actually the true enough story of a squad of British runners at the 1924 Olympics in Paris that focuses particularly on two of these guys. Um, the first is Eric Little. He's a devout Christian raised between Scotland and China, where his parents are missionaries. And Harold Abrams. He's a wealthy Cambridge student who is very, very aware that other people are aware that he's from a Jewish family who immigrated from Lithuania, and that in Cambridge in the 20s, that makes him a really big outsider. Now, both Lytle and Abrahams are using running to prove something to themselves, something to the country where they're from to the great beyond, beyond that. And they're spending the entire movie trying to articulate that something that makes them run. And because they're competing in different races at the end of the film, they both managed to win. Um, they are played by, at the time, very deliberately unknown actors. They're looking for people that people didn't know. And the people they selected were named Ian Charleston and Ben Cross. Take a listen.
3: Thank God for Lindsay. I thought the lad had his beaten. He did have us beaten, Effie. And thank God he did. I don't quite follow you. Well, the lad, as you call him, is a, a true man of principle and a true athlete. His speed is a mere extension of his life, its force. We sought to sever his running from himself. For his country's <laughs> sake, yes. No sake is worth that, Effie. Least of all, a guilty national pride.
2: Now, today, Chariots is most famous for its score by Vangelis, which you'll be hearing A lot of in this episode Um, That theme song eventually hit Number one on the Billboard Top 100 Congratulations, it did that in the summer Of 1982, but When the film came out on October 9th 1981, the number one song At the time was, once again Another song from a soundtrack It was Endless Love By Diana Ross and Lionel Richie So was the number two song that was also from the movies. It was Christopher Cross's theme for Arthur. You know, when you yes. get caught between the moon and New York City. Ooh, yeah. I mean, do we are are our movies just not theme song forward enough? What's happening?
1: Well, here's what I'll say. 1981 seems to be the most 80s of all 80s years. I mean, look at this. It's those two songs. This chariots of fire song uh, on golden pond nine to five like there is a weight here this like i think this weird dividing line of like it's still adult, but it's also like we're getting in touch with ourselves. Like, it doesn't feel disposable 80s yet. It doesn't feel like wedding singer 80s. It still feels like we're coming out of the 70s, 80s. And that's how I always view the 80s. Like, it's a little bit, you know, it's like Terms of Endearment. It's like we're we're going to talk about some shit. You know, we're going to get there. But we're also going to make it a little bit more of a popcorn film. And I feel like this movie, for all intents and purposes, I th- I think actually does that or is trying to do that. It's 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 caught between... What I think we know as a uh, a typical uh, Hollywood, you know, uh, underdog story, and something that actually is trying to do a little bit more. Would you agree with that? Or
2: that's interesting. I never thought about a separation in the first part of the decade like that. But you're making a convincing point. Like, how do we get out of the super angry '70s and be like, Reagan's in office, everything's cool, bro. Have a tab. I yeah. mean, so it's like when you're caught between the. 70s in the Reagan era.
1: Well, even like Arthur is like a movie that is. By the way, I didn't mean to cut you off on that amazing song. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we're we're in this interesting time where I think it's like we can still have these conversations. Like things can we can package interesting films you know like Arthur is about an alcoholic and 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 obviously he's a lovable alcoholic but that's a movie that I think is a little bit harder to make today and I know you're going to say what about uh what's his face who did it what about what's its face Paul well Amy good point Russell Brand when he did it was a remake it doesn't count it's a beloved film like I just think it's a harder movie to make like a, a straight up comedy about an alcoholic at this point but I feel like that's it, it's this wrestling of, like, the, the 70s and the 80s. Not that I've put that much time into it, but when I release my book, eventually, that will be the the main, if not the, the only thesis of my entire book, uh, about this one little period and when did the 80s switch. When do you think the 80s switched?
2: I mean, honestly, I'm swayed by you. I'm just swayed. And I wonder if it's a thing where, um, I've mentioned this before, but, like, the the detail that made me become a film person mm-hmm. was learning in a class my freshman year that when um, FDR got inaugurated, yeah. he was like, he turned to Hollywood and he was like, you guys need to stop making such depressing movies and start making more cheerful movies so the country Ooh. feels like we're on track. I wonder if Reagan... Especially coming from Hollywood, knowing everybody in Hollywood, did the same thing. I mean, even what you were talking about with the Iran hostages being set free, like, isn't that kind of the story that he went to them and he's like, can you hold it until, like, I'm in office? And then they'll really think I'm amazing. Oh, wow. He was a really media savvy guy. Like, he deliberately pretended to eat jelly beans. I mean, he liked jelly beans, but he made sure. a point of always having jelly beans in front of him just because he figured nobody could ever associate him with doing bad stuff if he was also an old man who liked jelly beans. So it, the, none of right. this would surprise me. None of this would surprise me if there's some Reagan conspiracy to uplift the national mood.
1: I'm looking right now and I'm I'm feeling like 1982 – is the last year of that, like, 70s influence, 83, it starts to sway. So 82, we got Fast Times, right? Which is, all right, we talked about Fast Times, where that kind of falls, all right? But then we have, like, Gandhi, uh, we have Sophie's Choice, The Verdict, right? Then we go into 83, and all of a sudden, 83, it's it's a little bit more poppy, right? We got Outsiders, still riding the line, Risky Business, wouldn't make that movie today. Big Chill, okay? But then we have Vacation. And Valley Girl, and then by the time you hit 84, Amy, Amy, 84, we are full on in. We are 16 Candles, Gremlins, Splash, Last Starfighter. Like, we are in a whole Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, Dune, uh, you know, Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, we are in it, we are in it and ready to go. Beverly Hills Cop, Terminator. Yeah, it's, this is an interesting moment here because I feel like, look, I'm going to go out and just say it right away. I don't like this movie. I think this movie is boring as hell. Uh, I think this movie is an underdog story where I felt nothing. Like at the end when they win, I'm like, who gives a shit? Like there was nothing about this movie. It was a lot of talking and it was a lot of, the one thing I want, and we talked about this last week, like sports films or movies about like these heroes who come up like, and these men, Let's put them on a different pedestal. What they went through, what they what they experienced as human beings, I have I, I'm amazed, and I and it seemed incredibly hard. I'm just talking about this as a feature film. I was so, okay, sure, fine. It just felt it it felt like a person who had no uh emotion telling me a story about something very emotional and i was like oh if in better hands that could be a better story now i'm totally wrong because this movie wins the oscar and it's all great but i what in recent memory on this show i can't remember not liking a movie as much as this wow even hoosiers Oh, I could watch Hoosiers. I mean, Hoosiers went down fine. Like that's the thing. Like I, I've gotten look. I this one you said it's an AFI movie. I'm like, yeah, damn straight it is, because it's got all the signs of an A, like of an AFI movie. And and it has nothing to do with the acting. It just is like it just didn't grab me. It just didn't grab me from moment one. Um, I don't know. I maybe I'm being too harsh on it. I mean, I've, look, I watched Minari right after it, and uh, I love Minari, so it wasn't like oh, I was in a bad mood. I wasn't ready for it. Like. I've been watching movies all week. I watched a Snyder Cut before this, and I really like the Snyder Cut. So uh, you can hear all about it on How Did This Get Made? <laughs> um, but uh, but you know, it's like there there is like I I wasn't in a mood. That's all I want to say. Like, I, like and sometimes you know, a mood can dictate how you are. You know how you experience a film. I, I don't. I'm I'm saying I wasn't in a mood. It just was not my cup of tea.
2: Oh my gosh, you know what I just realized? And this is like a parallel that I'm probably going to get yelled at for. Mm -hmm. But um, there's an interesting moment of like kind of the the production team that made this film and and how it relates to a modern day filmmaker that I also tend to never get moved by, which is Ridley Scott. Like, Mm -hmm. so this film, being a British production, it hired... um, You know, a director, Hugh Hudson, who came from doing commercials, it was like a commercial kind of, he was a commercial director, but he did like really cool, like artistic, awesome commercials, just like Ridley Scott was doing. And there was like this little small group of like British filmmakers with this visual eye that to me has almost never translated to emotion. Mm. Like I've almost never seen a Ridley Scott film and been like, I'm really touched deeply by this, but they're like aesthetically interesting. And you can tell there's somebody smart making choices. And I wonder if there's anything in that. And these two guys coming from commercials at the same time period. And to me, making like similar-ish movies-ish. Like I could kind of see this being a Ridley Scott film. Talking about religion all the time and like subtle mm-hmm. themes about it and dramatic slow motion. And of course, like that Vangelis score, you know, being very Blade yeah. is going to throw me off. But that's because they both knew Vangelis. They either were like, he was part of that little clique. Like, he was, he was not a film score guy until they are like, be our film score guy.
1: I really want to get into this Ridley Scott argument with you, but I don't want to derail the whole show. I just want to, like, ask a couple of quick questions if I can. I oh know. Okay. Okay. So, Alien not moving you emotionally. We know how you feel about Blade Runner, but Alien doesn't do it for you on any level?
2: I would say Alien is probably his best one. And then... Thelma oh God. And Louise. oh God, now I'm going to get yelled at. And then I was going to rank Thelma and Louise tied or second and then immediately confess that just because of some quirk of my age, I have never seen Thelma and Louise. And oh, I know wow. that that's I, insane.
1: I have never seen it either. So <gasps> oh maybe my I God,
2: could... I'm not alone?
1: No, but, yeah. So let's put that on the list. Uh,
2: I would love that because I've always wanted to see it. I've always wanted to see it. And, and it just it, I think because it had like a rape point, point in it when it came out, I was too young to see it. And it. I just never had a moment to catch up to it. And it... But I, I just want to say, I'm going to say it now for when we do it with Thelma in Louise episode, it, that's probably his best film.
1: Okay. And then Gladiator, not hitting it for you. Gladiator, very much a a sports movie, I guess, an underdog movie. I mean, not yeah. really, but I mean, uh, and then... Uh,
2: Can you see some Gladiator style in Chariots of Fire? Like the slow-mo oh, feel of the slow-mo yeah. running and that, yeah. I don't
1: disagree with what you're saying about how this movie feels like a Ridley Scott film, but I do believe that Ridley Scott is a director. I mean, I don't know if I would say like he's... The, the most emotional director. I think that sometimes you're right. Like a movie like American Gangster, I want it to be so much better than it is. But then I watch, you know, something like Black Hawk Down, which I thought was really fantastic. And then I feel like, uh, you know, I love Gladiator and Matchstick Men. But then when I watch something like Hannibal, I'm like, okay, well, that kind of misses the mark. And then like G.I. Jane is like, okay, sure. But then White Squall was really good. So it's like, I kind of go like... He's a director to me that's a little bit more hit and miss. Like, I, I feel like he's better. And I feel like he makes movies that are cold and can have a tendency to be cold. But I also feel like he makes a movie that can get you there emotionally. You know, I don't know.
2: I don't uh, know. I mean, Hugh Hudson didn't make enough movies to prove whether or not he had a Ridley Scott uh, caliber level of popcorn film in him. Sure. But I do think where these films have something in common, besides even just their background and their creators, is that I think of, I feel like when I watch a Ridley Scott film, that he makes films about things he's trying to understand, which I also feel about Christopher Nolan. You know, he's right. like, what is love? What is religion? What is faith? What is loyalty? Like, he's curious in these emotional ideas because I don't think he connects to them completely, but he wants to. Like, he connects to them cerebrally. Right. And so he makes these films about how to, how to, what what is faith? You know, like, what is love? I mean, and I think there's a little bit of that in Chariots of Fire. Like, this is a film that's also trying to be like, what is, like, Hard work. What is religious devotion? And he tells you that story about trying to understand what devotion is in a way that doesn't really emotionally connect to me here either. The same way it doesn't when Ridley Scott does it. I'm like, okay, I see where you're going, but it doesn't hit me.
4: Life is a highway.
1: This is a good story, right? Like, that is true. Like, the true story of this is really interesting. Um, I just don't know if it is... I don't know if if it translated the same way. There's a lot of angst in it. There's a lot of inner turmoil. I think the... Again, the specifics about, like, not wanting to run on Sabbath and... You know, this idea of like, I run and I'm going to go back and be a missionary. and
2: Yeah, like that speech he gives right here, like tying running to racing. He's a motivational speaker. He's basically mm-hmm. being like, I'm your motivational speaker.
5: You came to see a race today. See someone win. Happened to be me. <laughs> but I want you to do more than just watch a race. I want you to take part in it. I want to compare faith to running in a race. It's hard. It requires concentration of will, energy of soul. You experience elation when the winner breaks the tape especially if you got a bet on it. <laughs> but how long does that last? You go home. Maybe your dinner's burnt. Maybe, maybe I'm got a job. So who am I to say believe? Have faith in the face of life's realities. I would like to give you something more permanent, but I can only point the way. I have no formula for winning the race. Everyone runs in her own way, or his own way. Then where does the power come from to see the race to its end? From within.
1: Those ideas are really interesting to me, and I like, I love the way that the opening scene is shot I know I was joking about it earlier but like never has anyone captured ugly running better than this movie I mean there is a lot it's not pretty it's people don't run pretty uh, except for Tom Cruise and these guys they capture that even though I think Eric Liddell's wife was like he was a much more graceful runner than this film uh, showcased him That's so funny
2: because Eric Liddell at the time was known as the ugliest runner who had ever been born. Not his face. Like, not his face. He was a handsome guy. But he had that way of running where he... He looks like he's screaming in pain or he looks like he's having an orgasm in like slow motion. That you know, like his eyes are rolled back in his head and he's baring his teeth and he looks like miserable. He looks like he's reached into something deep from the wellspring of pain and humanity, like something almost like Greek God coming down from, yeah. from high. And he's like, this is what's pushing me across the line. And, and he like... And because Vangelis shows it in slow motion and because he shows it like what he runs like eight, nine races, he shows it in slow motion basically every single time. you get to spend a lot of time watching him. You know, he looks like my boyfriend's stepsister's dog. That's a very like niche tweet. Almost nobody will know niche what I'm talking tweet. about but I two mean that people. is that is
1: yeah. yeah that's that is that is for really for three people,
2: yes. So for the three of you out there um, who know Eloise, Eloise, you can picture, she's like a small white dog who's always just grimacing and like baring her teeth Mm. and looking miserable. Yeah. I feel like it's a, I feel like it's a, it's a small dog I get that. I get that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He looks like that. He looks exactly like Eloise. Her tongue's usually out. And this is when my boyfriend's lovely stepsister, who's a pet photographer, says, isn't she the most beautiful dog? And you want to be like, not really, but that, but that's Eric. That's this runner guy.
1: Well maybe I should start and say what did I like about this film? I think I like the relationship between the trainer. Uh I like that like that kind of you know, this this camaraderie even though but I feel like everything just kind of I don't know if I'm too much of an an American uh sports uh, movie person, because I felt like I wanted that trainer to be, I wanted that relationship to be more like the Rocky relationship. I wanted you know, I wanted the ending to have more of a ba-ba-ba, like a real tra- I mean, this movie ends on their death essentially. I mean, what a what a way out on this, you know, it's like oh, wow, this is rough stuff. Um I guess I like the Courtyard Run. That was fun.
2: Okay, I think now we're drilling into the question that I'm asking myself too. Was I a little bit restless in Chariots of Fire? Because it has this you stiff upper lip about how it tells the story and not this American like sweat and working hard and I'm going to cry and I want to make you cry. Like it doesn't have that on purpose. It's trying right. to be this like, I think, kind of meditative film. That was like the motion I really felt like I got out of it is like chariots of fire. It feels like soft and it feels hazy and it feels kind of like the film equivalent of like a memory, you know, like you're, you're watching these scenes of people talking, but you don't even often like hear them talking. Like you don't even care what they're saying to each other. They're sort of mumbling things to each other, but we're not there as he's like, I did it, honey. I won for us. You know, they don't have those conversations. You just see him maybe have that conversation so it's like you're getting these flashes of what's remembered from
1: this time
2: but they don't ask you to live there and be with these men and understand how
1: they felt i mean even could i just say and tell me if i'm wrong but i even felt like the anti-semitism was very lightly touched like i mean as a as a fan of uh what was that that other sports film with uh, brendan Fraser? oh my gosh remember that movie school ties you know, like, like, all right. Well, there's, you know, certain there's an anti-Semitism story in there, and I just felt like it was everything was not to say that everything that, that School Ties is the best film, uh, but I'm just saying that like it just felt like everything was, yeah. So it's you know, it very like I apologize to any of our British uh, listening audience, uh, but I felt like it was all like oh yes, yes, yeah, we are upset about that. You know, it's like it was very much under the. It wasn't like. Nothing felt that important and in uh, that clip that you played like that motivational speaker that's about the the height of it, like when you know it you know the God runs through him or he's happy that you know it's just sort of like everyone's like, oh, yeah, so come, on. I'm in love with you, and this we'll be together and like even the love story like I'm just like, give me more Alice Krieg, I mean, oh, I love Alice Krieg. I love her as the Borg queen, come on, and uh great to see her in this as well um but I just felt like everything just was like yeah 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 it was if very tough it was tough it was very hard it was very I mean- hard.
2: Uh, not that I don't love your British impersonation, which no. seems to just be mumbling like you're half asleep. It's very great. I really like that.
1: Yeah, we did, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, yeah, like, oh God, like, oh, my God. Like, oh, my God. You had to, you had to, like, you couldn't run on the Sabbath. What was that about? I was like, well, yeah, it was all, you know, was, yeah, we did it. You know, so we figured it out. Like, it just feels like <laughs> there's no the attention. It's <laughs> British impression I've ever heard. It's like you're a hamster from England. It's like. <laughs> It's just sort of like, I guess, nothing is given like that. Like It just feels like, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. And everything's like, oh, yeah. yes. Right. You know, it's like, I don't know. I just felt like I missed passion. I missed emotion. and Okay.
2: I will say, I actually agree
1: with you. And I thought in that, to me, that was one of the things that made the film
2: interesting. Okay. Is that... You know, I think a lot of times when we see like racism or sexism portrayed in movies, like even nine to five, it feels very big, like larger mm-hmm. than life. And I thought this film really got into like the quiet racism, the, yes, the racism that you just I agree, sense yes. and that people don't come out and say to you. And because of that, it felt actually really credible to me, like not many nobody really comes out to the face of Harold Abrams of, um, and says like you're Jewish and that's weird but they like to say it behind his back he leaves the room and they're like oh Abrahams oh that's his name yes or, or the way like his the two people who are like leading his school at Cambridge the way they talk about him when he can't hear them like here when they're talking about his family
4: who's Abrahams what do you know about him
5: Repton chap Jewish his father's a financier in the
4: city. Financier? Yeah. What's that supposed to mean, I wonder?
3: I imagine he lends money. Is very clear. what do they say about the sum? Academically sound, arrogant, defensive to the point of pugnacity. Mm, as they invariably are. Yet possessing a keen sense of duty and loyalty.
2: I mean, the coded language in that, the thems and the, oh, his dad loves right. money, that felt like this almost like, I don't know, like evil, ghostly, haunted house racism. That sounds strange. But like he, he's walking around this school and he feels like there's this vibe and nobody will say it to him. And he feels like he's crazy because he's angry about this way he's being treated, but he doesn't get treated it to his face. And so it feels like it makes him insane. You know, like really mad because he knows it's there and he can't prove it. And he winds up having these conversations with like the girl that he falls in love with, with Sybil, where he's like, This is a racist place. I'm running because she's Jew I'm Jewish. And she is like, What are you talking about? I'm an addict. It's a compulsion,
5: a weapon.
0: Against what?
5: Being Jewish, I suppose. (laughs) You're not serious. You're not Jewish, or you wouldn't ask. Fiddlesticks! People don't care. Anyway, being Jewish hasn't done you any harm. I'm what I call semi-deprived. That sounds
2: clever. What does it mean?
5: It means they lead me to water, but they won't let me drink.
2: I I thought that was fascinating, like really fascinating, this idea of knowing but not being able to
1: prove it. I I agree with that, and I think that you're right, that maybe the subtle nature of it makes it actually a more artistically valid kind of feature, because it is. It's like, I think, look, we've experienced that here in this country, and and we've been talking about this a lot lately. Like, it's all the subtle, it's all the subtlety, right? It's It's all the microaggressions that really, for the most part, I feel like the microaggressions are the ones that can kind of do the most damage because they're not often acknowledged, right? They are just a part of the world that we, we, we breathe in the smog of these microaggressions and that affects everything from film and TV and, you know, incidents on the street and in work. So there is something about that. That's really interesting. Like this movie, there isn't a big bad. It is just a undercurrent of us versus them. And, and that is, like, and, and I do applaud that, I think, um, but for a feature, I wonder if microaggression is, are the most compelling thing to watch, right? Because there's, like, he's fighting it against this thing. We know it's there. He knows it's there. But it's, like, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to wrap my head around it because it's also, like, I would love, you know, in real life, it's something that I am actually very engaged in, and looking at and wanting to talk to and and speak about. But it's like, but in the film, it didn't feel like it had that, that emotion for me just felt like, okay, yeah, these are, that's them and that's this. And I don't know. Like, yeah, but I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that maybe yeah. that is good script writing, but maybe it isn't good script writing either. I don't know. I don't know. So I mean, next... I felt like it was respectable script writing, even right. though
2: I wish I was more Truthful. affected by it. Truthful. yeah. Like, the most that I think Abrahams gets directly confronted with it in the film is when he has that meeting with the, t- with the Cambridge guys that we just heard. And they're annoyed that he's hired a coach. You know, they're like, right. you hired a coach. And they're talking about how he's gone and hired a coach and how that's not what a Cambridge man would do because a Cambridge man honors being an amateur and doesn't try to try too hard. It's almost like they're saying here at the school, you have to have this, like, you have to have this air of privilege that you don't have to try hard to get the things that you want. And in trying harder than we want you to try, you're standing out. And- he seems to know right then that it's also they're trying to separate him from being a Cambridge man, he thinks, also because he's Jewish. And that's why they're right. calling him into his office to even have this conversation in the first place. And he wants to have that conversation. He wants them to know that he's aware and that they're aware that he they don't like his trainer because his trainer is half Italian and half Arab. And, right. and they won't just say it. And he's, like, so irritated.
1: But I think that that's often a sign of, like, I think – Again, I'm making a sweeping generalization to our British audience, and I apologize, but like the undercurrent of like British culture as well, where there are these different levels of uh, caste or, you know, these different opinions about certain people. And if you are in that world, I think you acknowledge them a little bit more. It's, you know, the same way that accents can kind of put people in a different level and a different uh, point in society. So I st- I definitely see that. Um, I see it. and Yeah. Like the know, range
2: of class in here is so fascinating. that Yeah. It- that you have Abrahams, who's very rich, he seems, or rich right. enough that like there's that moment right when he meets his the guy who's going to be his friend and is sort of, I guess, the narrator of this film because we're using his letters to yeah. talk about home. But he, the guy, he never really feels like he pops out as like an mm-hmm. actual narrator. Like, I never feel like I know that guy, which yeah. I was confused. I kept being like, those are his letters, I guess. OK, Wh- why? Why is he here again? <laughs> but like he, the Abrahams is so confident about like tipping and having men do things for him. And this guy seems to be a little bit poorer and he's like, this man's just throwing money around. Like, what's happening? But it goes yeah. from that range all the way up to, like, their buddy, um, the fictional character, uh, Lindsay, Lord Lindsay, who literally puts, like, I mean, he drinks champagne the entire movie, which is fascinating. All of these runners like, just drinking Moet constantly. They're just like, Moet for this. Oh, you've got, like, a, a new pencil. Let's open the champagne. And he puts, like. Glasses of champagne on his hurdles so that he'll know if he like clipped a hurdle because he knocked over a glass of champagne. I mean, that to me is the most decadent thing I've seen in a movie.
1: That was one of the coolest sections of the movie, in my opinion. Like, well, I like this training sequence. Like that, that was a really fun way to kind of show the art of it. Because again, I you know, we're talking about running and we've been talking about team sports and and running is a very personal sport, obviously. It's about you. Yes, you're beating other people, but it's about what you are doing as well. And and I think that the reason why team sports are so engaging, and even when you have something like a Brian song, which is not even a, really a team, I mean, it's about football, it's just team sport, but it's not about the team winning. Um, you understand the camaraderie in which... Uh, players, you know, unite, or you have to get over a struggle to win a game, or do something. Here, it's much more internal, and so I guess what we're saying is, and what you're saying, actually, you're enlightening enlightening me, which is like, this is where. You know, this is really about an internal struggle. Like, what can he get over? How people feel about him? Can he, can he go up against all odds when everyone is looking at him and and judging him? Can he still produce? Can he still be the best he can be under all these circumstances? And that is an impressive feat. Like, that is an impressive will. And you know, I go back to Rocky because Rocky, um, you know, is a movie that I think is very much about like, can you stand up? And even though it's against somebody else, but it's about his personal growth. His everyone's saying no I see a lot of similarities in Rocky in this um you know it's about it's two Rockies but uh but you see like, there is like that idea that it has to come from within and why are you doing this and what do you want to prove and you know the differences are very unique about what they want to prove like one just wants to do it to do it and the other one wants to do it you know for something that is uh you know I think a little bit more for the sport of it
2: yeah there's sort of like for the for the Glory of myself as an individual, which feels like it's Abraham's story. Like he feels like he has to prove he belongs. And then there's for the glory of God, because I love to run. And if I can run this well, God must make me want to do it, which is Lydell. And maybe that's kind of where we're bumping up against something that caught me off guard with the film. The, the, The lack of Hollywood of the structure in that I thought... Oh, for sure. This is going to wind up with, you know, Abrahams and Lydell competing at the Olympics. And who am I going to be rooting for? Right. right like, right. Like which one of these men is going to win that big race? And it turns out to just not do that at all. They're running in different races. And so it's like they're it I felt like it was building them up to be rivals. And it
1: right. Did it yeah. really?
2: They pushed each other forward for a while. And they continued to make each other better, but it, it straddled that world where it was never quite about being a team and never quite about competition, um, between each other. It was just sort of vapory in in where the story was going. Like, I guess, I mean, the most dramatic part is like that, um, Abraham says early on, like he's never, ever, ever lost a fight, lost a fight, lost a race. Now you've got me doing the rocky stuff. (laughs) And so when he loses his first race, and he does lose it to Liddell in like a kind of practice fun run, um, the way that they score that scene, like the music that comes in, that percussion we're going to hear in a second, which is just like them closing the chairs of the stadium of everybody watching. Yeah. I thought that scene had so much power and I was bummed we never really went back to that place. interesting because like this is a sport where there is only one winner you know there's only one winner there's not draws there's not ties there's not a team but there becomes kind of a team of them looking out for each other of like Lord Lindsay giving Lydell his spot when they're having the showdown which I guess that's the more like outward moment of of pressure in this film is when literally the Prince of Wales is telling Lydell, You have to run on the Sabbath. Please run on the Sabbath, without ordering him as your king to run on the Sabbath.
1: Like that to me was the most interesting part of the entire film. Like that moment when he's getting on the boat and they say, Oh, and the race is on Saturday or something. you know, like a oh, Sunday, and he's like and you see that like look on his face. And I love that like I love that idea. I mean, we we live in a culture now where I think it's very hard to represent your feelings about anything and not get like ripped apart about it. And and the easiest version of that, uh, and there are many others, but the easiest version of that would be like, okay, Colin Kaepernick wants to kneel here, and he's kneeling for a reason, and and it is not necessarily respected by a lot of people. It is by a lot of people, but it's not by a lot of people. And here's somebody who is also making something he's making a choice, a personal choice. And I feel like that is, that to me, at the crux of everything, is the most interesting part of the whole movie. Like, he loves this thing, but he also has something that he loves more. And I think a lot of times in in American culture, it's like, well, why don't you love the thing that we all love the most as much as we all love the thing the most? You know, it's like it, like, I was talking about this the other day. I had a friend who was kind of shit-talking about being on a famous uh sitcom and and people were so mad at them and i totally understand why people are mad at that person because they love that thing it's in their mind that thing is the thing that that person should be doing um and they're not wrong it's like that's what they that was what brings them joy but also the people who do these things i'm talking so vaguely now uh It's like they also can have other goals. You're making a real
2: chariots of fire metaphor here.
1: I know, really. But everybody can have another goal. I guess what I like about it is that this movie puts a dimension on people, right? It says, yes, they love this sport, but they are not just this sport. And they are not going to compromise who they are to compete in the sport. And I guess... There is this idea that it's very hard to separate. No, no, you are our sports star. You do our sports thing. And that's it. And whether that's, you know, Kawhi not wanting to play back to backs last year because he had injured himself, you know, there's this idea like, well, no, 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 you're not doing it the right way. Oh, well, I would, I always will play back to back. Like, Yes, but we're not respecting what somebody's saying about their own body, right? Like we're we are like no, no, no. You have to do the thing that we want. We have no information about it, but we are we believe that you need to do this thing. I I don't know. I think it's it's something that comes up. I think a lot in sports, like this idea of like no, no. You are just our you are our rat in the cage. Do the thing that we want you to do. And what is so cool about this movie is you know this is obviously a very long time ago, uh, and I love that a person felt. Like their person, who they were, was bigger than their sport. Very long-winded way of saying that, but I mean, I'm working that out. Like, to me, no, like yeah, that, like, yeah.
2: You're working. At, I mean, it sounds like you're working out this idea that the film is saying that you can do something as an individual, and that at a certain point you find out that you're representing something for a country, and you don't have
1: control over that. Right. You You lose the identity of yourself because you become this cog in a bigger machine.
2: Yeah. And especially in such a personal thing like running, which is actually happening again. Like, I don't um, know if you've heard about this uh, conflict that's coming up for the Tokyo Olympics. But there's this runner who's really interesting. Like, she should have a movie about her. Her name is BD Deutsch. She's an um, Orthodox runner from Israel. And she's a woman who only started to run after she had her fourth kid. She was like, I should lose some weight. And so she took up jogging. And then within three years, she was like Israel's top marathon runner. Wow. She's just this great athlete. She ran a race while seven months pregnant. Like, she's insane. And she's so good at running. And yet they're having... Their meet for the Olympics on the Sabbath, like that's when um, that's when her race would have to be. And so she has been trying to petition Tokyo to try to change like the rules of when they have when they're when the marathon is going to be held so she can run. And I mean, this is a woman who's been like trailblazing running as, as an Orthodox woman. She literally runs in like a long skirt in a headdress, you know, and yet she's amazing. And so it, I, I'm compelled by the idea that this story isn't going away.
1: No, I love it and and I think you know we live in a culture too where I think on one hand people are so disrespectful in 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 whole, uh, wholesale disrespectful and what do you want us to do change everything and you know and because of course like look at a certain point you know you are agreeing to be in this system and do this thing and and we and not every day that you might pick might produce a problematic day for someone right and I get the idea that you just have to kind of or I get the mentality of just suck up and do it. That's what you're doing. And, you know, but I also respect the people who are like, yeah, well, you know, that's not like my, that's not my, like, I will be judged by a higher authority than you, uh, here, you know? So that's, and again, I think this is such an interesting part of the film that I don't think is necessarily handled that well at all. I'm like I don't feel this emotion. Like, I feel like I feel more I feel like we're having a more emotion-filled conversation than how this played out in the film to a certain degree.
2: Were you confused by like Lydell's relationship with um, that woman, I guess what was her name, Jenny? Like, because like yeah. a lot of the movie with Lytle is like him getting glared at by Jenny, this like headed yeah. woman who seems to be about his age. Yeah, and I was so confused because I was like, is that his girlfriend? Is that his wife? I thought at one point he called her his mother. They seemed to have this close bond, and then I googled and found out she was his sister. But I really never realized she was his no, sister. No, that's what I'm I was completely is, bewildered by what was happening.
1: Mo- movie is under the surface a lot, and it, like it also I feel like feels like maybe. Is it a story that everyone knows? And they're like, well, we don't need to explain that, you know?
2: I mean, maybe a little bit. Like, Lydell, he's a new character to me. Actually, I had a little bit of this, of a Mandela effect watching this movie. Because I had a memory, I swear, of, like, walking through the living room when I'm a little kid and my parents are watching this on VHS or TV or something. And I remembered hearing the theme song, but I thought in my head that they were running chariots. Like, it was Like, Ben-Hur. And so my whole life, I've thought this movie was actually about chariot racing. Um, I just, I feel like I saw chariots. I have this image. It was, like, kind of a yellowish track. They were watching this movie. That song was on. And it was Chariots of Fire. And so I was completely confused to realize it was about runners, like, last month. And yet, like, Lydell himself is a huge icon. Absolutely huge icon. I mean, and part of, like, what happens to him after the film ends. Like, he goes back to China after he wins his medal. And he dies in an internment camp, which is what the film ends with saying.
1: Um, and not even that specific, right? I mean, it, it, it kind of... I mean, it says yeah, it. Yeah, so it's just
2: like he died. Yeah. He's yeah. like he died. I mean, what he died of in the internment camp um, was he had a brain tumor and they, oh. he wasn't getting the right medicine. But the stories of him being in the internment camp, he was there for two years. Um, and he becomes kind of like this leader of the camp in a way. Like he... He you know, keeps the kids like instructed in school. He keeps the moral courage up. Like the the man that he was when he walked with religion, mm-hmm. uh, came forth even higher. I think in in the interment. Oh came. wow! Actually, they made a film about it, uh, which I did not know. But it has Joseph Fiennes. It just came out a few years ago. Like that's how big Lydell is for people who knew about their history. Here's a little bit of the trailer. It's called On Wings of Eagles.
5: You must provide medicine. We have no medicine. Let me race you. If I win, you permit one visitor to bring what we need. Yeah! You can't win this race. It'll kill you. You know, I've often said it was the prayers of others that carried me to victory. Let's give them something to pray for.
2: And honestly, we're also kind of getting into things sort of like Brian's song, where the other man in this movie had recently died when this came out, Harold Abrahams, mm-hmm. which is the funeral that this movie opens with. He died in 1978. The movie comes out in 81. He actually died after they decided to make the film. they were like, oh, the story is great. Let's do this film in 1977. And then he died. And so then they had to figure out how to tell the story around him. But there's that framework of this famous person just died. You probably read obituaries and like salutes to him. And so I bet the history was a lot more present. And it's that way of opening this film with the funeral that is what made me feel like it was Lawrence of Arabia. That they were like, Okay, okay, okay. This guy just died. Now let us tell you why he was awesome. Now let's go to these like epic moments to help you understand why this figure had this force of myth, you know? Yeah. And and I thought there was some of that even in the way he talks about running, like, why am I doing this? Oh, Like, you know how in in Lawrence of Arabia he has those moments like, what am I doing? Why am I here? And I felt like you could hear a little bit of that in Abraham's, like right before his final race when he's like, why am I letting my life be defined by 10 seconds?
5: Aureol chap, I'm scared. Sam and I, we've labored, rowed and bullied for this. Day in, day out. You've seen us. Chuckled over us, I'll be bound, out in all weathers, madmen. And for what? I was beaten out of sight in the 200. Then that paddock tricked me in the semi. now, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Aubrey, I've known the fear of losing. But now I'm almost too frightened to win.
1: You know, it's interesting. Like, you know, we're talking about, I know I mentioned in a very roundabout way that whole idea about being on a sitcom and being this person. I think that whenever you do anything where you are in the public eye, um, your decisions are going to be vetted by a community outside of just your own work sphere. You know, there is a part where I think we all think, is it worth it? Is it worth what I'm doing? I love what I'm doing, but is it worth, like, the scrutiny? Is it worth, you know, I'm I'm looking right now at Chrissy Teigen, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and she left Twitter this week. And she left Twitter because, you know, she speaks about like, you know, just people were coming after her at a certain point and, and people like look to her as like, well, you were the one who claps back. You're the one you created this community, et cetera, et cetera. But there is this thing where it's like the emotional toll that it took on her at a certain point was like, and I'm out. I got to get, I have from my own, like, I think that we can kind of sometimes put ourselves in these positions where we forget the love of it because we get caught up in the drama that people are putting on it. And I, and I think that this movie does do, like, I think these are, these are interesting men because like, oh, this is not like your typical, you know, I think most of the time, and again, I'm generalizing, like the sports films that we see are, I wish I almost had my shot, but I missed it. Oh, I'm going to get my shot again. And now I'm going to get it. Or, you know, it's like no one ever gave us a chance and now we're going to get it. And here, these are really well-rounded people who don't feel like they're they are not defined by their sport, which is kind no, of
2: No, they're like, we're the best and everybody knows we're the best and now we just want to make sure we prove it. Yeah. And they're trying to prove it against, I mean, I thought when the Americans come in, when like the Americans who are the fastest in the world at this point mm-hmm. uh, come into the film, I thought that we were going to be the baddies,
1: right? Like, oh, Yeah.
2: The way that they introduced America and like the American fighters. French are really the baddies. <laughs> but that music they were playing, and like, I want to hear the music that Vandellis is playing as we see the Americans. And they basically are saying, like, British runners are gentlemen, we run in fields. Like, I guess we could maybe do some knee lifts if you think we really have to. Yeah. But we're very casual about this whole thing. We're just doing it for the gentlemanly sport of it. And the Americans are like, this is war. This is, like, military. Like, we have all of these gym guys in matching outfits, and they are yelling, and this is going to happen. Blah, 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 blah. Like, it, it sounds so thunderous. <laughs> Honestly, okay, Paul, I'll say I agree with what you're saying about the flaws of this film and that I wish I would have cared a little bit more. I wish I would have gotten any sort of catharsis. I think the catharsis is really missing for me here. Yes. But maybe it's just because I, like, smoked weed for the first time to watch the Snyder Cut. I was like, I could smoke weed to this movie.
1: Oh, like, yeah. The yeah. Snyder I mean, Cut is like, uh, uh, what is that movie uh, you probably can pronounce better than I can... Uh, Kona Kwatsi or Kona oh, Katsi. Yeah. K- yeah. Kona Uh, which at worst, that's what the cider cut is. It's like you could just sit back and back. Like, cool, man. This is neat. I'm watching people. I'm watching waves hit Aquaman on a on a like a perch on the shore. Cool. Like I'm just like in. Yeah, there's I. I. Uh, <laughs> I get that. <laughs> Wait, yeah. so you were still hung over from being high when you watch this. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, know, I smoke weed like once a year, so it's like woo, we're getting crazy. Um, with with the slow-mo running and with that score, I was like, I could blitz out to this. I could just zone. Mm-hmm. I could just chill. And if this right, movie okay. was on TV, I'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm not gonna pay too much attention to it, but this is such a good background movie.
0: Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie?
4: And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Mick Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: It's all
1: just Vangelis.
2: I mean, if we can be honest with
1: it, like what it, well, it is, and it's it's sort of like there. I mean, it's beautiful. It's nice, and the uh, the wardrobe is fantastic. The you know. Uh, oh, it's
2: funny they keep running in mud when they're wearing white. I'm like, I
1: did like it, but I mean, clearly they wanted to like. I mean, yeah. Oh my gosh! I
2: mean, I think they tried to punch up this movie knowing that Americans are terrible people who need more excitement. Like this movie was rated G in England, and when they brought it to America, they added one swear to try to make it a PG rating because they're like, no American will even see it if it's a G rating.
1: That's hilarious. It feels like a G-rated <laughs> film.
2: Yeah. They added the swear actually really early on in a, in a scene that made me think, oh, I'm going to love this movie, which is that scene where they're like getting into the cart, of course, and like Abraham's yeah. and he's like tipping the guys. But you see the porters and the porters are these two World War One vets who had just come home and they look sci-fi, right? Like they yeah. have had this reconstructive surgery on that looks crazy. I mean, it, it almost looks like a character you'd see in Blade Runner. You know, the metal glasses and the
1: yeah, 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 the
2: face plate plants. And I was fascinated by that because I feel like that's a part of World War One I, I haven't seen much in film, which I talked a little bit about when I did an episode on zombies for my podcast Zoom about how these people came home from this war that had been the worst war ever. And we had just almost the worst Venn diagram of having – The technology to destroy these people's faces and bodies and just enough technology to keep them alive like that 50 years before they would have died. But now we were able to keep people alive and it meant they had to live in the world being kind of like I'm using the word monster only because we hadn't seen faces like that. You know, and that's there's this book about how the post World War One is where horror came from really good book about how like that was when we saw people walking on the streets that looked monstrous to us. Yeah. Because it was also unfamiliar that we were able to even do this and keep these people alive. And, and it's a really fascinating theory. And so I thought this movie was going to have that because you have this framework of world war one that seems to set it up. I mean, even, even Abraham's and his whole Cambridge class being told like, you guys need to do great things because it's 1919 here when at the start of the film. And This whole generation of young men died and you didn't have to fight. So we need you to live for them.
5: The glory of England. And they died for England and all that England stands for. And now by tragic necessity, their dreams have become yours. Let me exhort you, examine yourselves. Let each of you discover where your true chance of greatness lies. For their sakes... For the sake of your college and your country, seize this chance, rejoice in it, and let no power or persuasion deter you in your task.
2: I think that hit me so hard because I've been thinking, as I think a lot of people have, about like 1917, 18, 19, in the context of what we just lived through. You know, this time of a pandemic and also incredible, incredible chaos and upheaval and, like, where do we rebound from that? How do we get to the roaring 20s? And so, to have this film kind of start off with, I think, some of that framework, like, we have been through hell and where do we go? That bought me at least another hour of wanting to love this movie.
1: Yeah. And, and look, it's a tough thing for me to be like, I do a movie, I do a podcast where I shit on movies that are bad, right? This is not a bad movie. Um, this is not, it, it's well acted, it's well shot, it, it's, beautifully scored it's it's artfully done it just didn't do it for me and I think that there's something to be said for that you know like it's an Oscar movie and I feel like you can look at the history of Oscar films and find plenty of them that don't necessarily cross the aisle like you know it's not it's not like it's not a beloved film every now and then you do get one but they oftentimes are divisive
2: you know, there is a person who I think will really disagree with you who says that Chariots of Fire is his favorite film. Who is that? I'm just going to play this clip. Uh, this dates back to 2008. Um, and it is a Katie Kirk interview with Joseph Biden. She asks him what his favorite film is. And here's what he says
0: What's your favorite movie and why?
4: Chariots of Fire. I think it's probably my favorite movie um but the truth of the matter is the thing about it there is it's a place where you know someone put uh personal fame um and glory uh uh behind principle um and you know that to me is the mark of real heroism um when 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 someone would do that do you remember your favorite scene from that movie uh, I think the favorite scene is when the uh, he is making the decision and talking to his wife about, do I do this? What do I do? He so desperately wanted to run, but concluded he couldn't.
5: God makes kings and the rules by which they govern. And those rules say that the Sabbath is his. And I, for one, intend
4: to keep it that way. It was that, you know, that moment of decision. Uh, I think that was my favorite scene. I also like the scene in the beach where, you know, he is just running.
2: By the way, as I said, this is 2008. He's being interviewed on Katie Kirk because he's the VP. So that means they also asked Sarah Palin. Da, da, da. Here's what she said. I love those old sports movies like Hoosiers and, and Rudy. Um those that uh, show that the underdog can make it, and it's all about
4: tenacity, and work ethic, and determination, and just doing the right thing. So it was, it would probably be one of those two old sports movies. Do you have a favorite scene
0: from either of them?
4: Oh, at the very end, the victories. Yeah. All right, go get it
0: again! Rudy, where you know, he gets to run out on the field, and he gets to participate and make a difference.
1: and then yours when they win. Wow, Amy, did, have we, <laughs> wow, <laughs> wow, all right, I mean. So that, this is the way, most
2: popular podcast miniseries we've done for people who have run for office.
1: Yeah, holy cow, <laughs> okay, well, look, you know, again, I have nothing, Like, I didn't do it for me, but that is okay. I mean, I imagine that I'm probably very much in the minority here. <laughs>
2: People really, really love this when it came out. I was thinking part of it might be um, because jogging had just gotten really popular in America, huh. too. Did you know about this, that, um, that the 70s and 80s is like when we actually started to become a, a
1: country of runners? Uh, I did not know that.
2: Yeah, like up until then, like jogging wasn't really a Sport that people thought of that much Like there were these yeah. crazy elite guys Who were like super into it But yeah. it wasn't like the average American Was into jogging And then um, in 1972 Uh, An American won um, the marathon at the Olympics, and it was the first time an American had actually won that race since the 1908, I think. And so suddenly America was like, oh, what's a marathon? Like, we didn't even really know what a marathon was. It was like some archaic thing that we didn't care about. And now it feels like everybody I know has run a marathon. I will never run a marathon. I'm incredibly lazy. I
1: mean, this is uh, I just I feel like I just need to call this out to anybody who's listening right now. Yes, I know there's a moment here for me to comment on a thing that I did. I'm not. What? What is it? Uh, it's just like a dumb bit that I, is a dumb bit that my character did on a show where I talk about running a marathon. People go, what? The marathon? <laughs> I go, what? It's like I was constantly quoted back to me. It's a big, it's a, you know, not a big deal. It's just a, it, I am acknowledging that, yes, I understand that there's a moment for me to comment on that. And I'm not <laughs> going to do it.
2: Touche. I love being exposed to different parts of your life. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but no, like I mean, my dad was a marathon runner. My dad was a jogger. And I think he kind of be- was a runner and jogger because of things like this movie and like that Olympic run. Like there's this old cover of People Magazine. Somebody just retweeted into my Twitter recently from like 1973. 1970- eight or something like that and it's um Farah fawcett on the cover of people with lee majors and they're like jogging the new craze right, but right. really like 25 million americans took up jogging and then this movie comes out so like yeah it's like if 25 million americans took up bobsledding and then cool runnings came out it would be like amazing you you understand my new passion and i think it, it i think that is part of its popularity
1: yeah, it, it, it's funny how, like, these crazes, I mean, I remember this is, like, the time of, like, the Jane Fonda tapes and, and the, you know, uh, there was, like, exercise on after, like, Regis and Kathy Lee, I remember. Like, it was, like, it, you know I, this is, like, the beginning of the health craze, the health craze of, of our, this is, a you know, it's, it's sweatbands, everything. It's almost the look is as much as important as, like, what the exercise was.
2: Yeah, for real, which has never made sense to me because pictures of Americans, we looked so much thinner and healthier before the health craze. Yeah. What is that? I mean, is it... Okay, now I'm going to get on my tangent about how it's probably all low-fat foods with too much sugar. But, I mean, there probably
1: is it, right? Uh, um, Yeah, I guess to a certain extent. I don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Now I feel like I'm Tangent Queen. But, yes... Most people really loved this film. It has not aged well um, when it was re-released in 2012 for the British Olympics um, because they were having them in London. So they're like, we're bringing back Chariots of Fire. It's going to be such a big deal. It wasn't loved quite as much.
1: Okay, interesting.
2: There was a moment when um, – I mean, are you into the Olympics opening ceremonies?
1: No. I mean, the Olympics – I mean, look, I will watch them. It's just not my – again – Olympics. We, I think we may have talked about this on the show. Not my cup of tea either. I, like I didn't grow up in an Olympic family household. And maybe I should get into it. Um, everybody I know, I'm, I'm, I am truly an outlier. I don't care about the Olympics Wow. one bit.
2: Because I was struck in the Olympic scenes here in 1924. I was like, what a puny opening show. Because like yeah. now we live in an area where the opening shows are amazing and they're huge and gigantic and splashy. I still think the Beijing Olympics kind of set the bar for that. But Mr. Bean showed up at the 2012 Olympics to play the Chariots of Fire song. I, have you ever seen this clip? It's great. No. Okay. Here's what I want you to listen for as we're listening to this. Mr. Bean has been tasked at the 2012 opening of the Olympics to just play that synthesizer note. dun, 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 oh, dun, okay. dun, 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 dun. So that's what you're going to be listening to here. And as he's playing it, he's super bored. He's trying to, like, scratch his nose and do other things. He's trying to use an an umbrella to, like, hit the note for him. He's so sick of it. And then he just winds up hallucinating that he's running in the race.
5: is in this humor at its best.
2: Ron Atkinson. Also, by the way, that song that to me is Chariots of Fire was not actually supposed to be the song they were going to use in the movie. Did you know this? No, what were they going to use? Okay, so... um... Uh, so the director, Hugh Hudson, definitely wanted like this Vangelis score, but he had this different Vangelis song in mind from an older movie that he had heard. And he was like, that song's great. I want you to play that one. And Vangelis was like, no, no, do I have to? I want to come up with something new. In fact, I'll just <gasps> let Vangelis talk about it.
3: This uh, opening shot, people running, we almost had another music for this because Hugh Hudson, when he shot the scene he used one of my other themes and he liked it very much so so when he asked me to do the music of of the movie to score the movie he said you do the rest and we keep is yours anyway we keep this theme for the beginning and i said but maybe i can do something else he said to me no you can't beat this one this is really great score but I was not very happy because I wanted to do something better for the beginning and then the last 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 minute I succeed to convince Hugh and David to just play the Childish of Fire we know and if they like it they keep the new one if they don't like it they keep the old one so thank God they keep the new one and that's why we have Childish of Fire
2: what he leaves out in that moment, and you could hear a little bit of what the song could have been in there, which I think is definitely inferior, is that when he finally hit upon the right song, he figured out where um, where um Hugh Hudson and I think the producer were eating at a restaurant. And he drove up to the restaurant because he was so excited in a Rolls Royce and he like ordered them to come out to the, his car and he... Cranked up that song in his car and drove them around the block, and they were like, Okay, you're right, this is the right song.
1: That is amazing! Oh my god, I love that. Well, I mean, look, this is this song, like you know, we talk about a lot of these films that are elevated in our culture because of a component of them that is unique and special. Do you think that this is what? It is for, I mean, I feel like this is what it is. Like when people think of Chariots of Fire, they probably think of this song in that opening scene, and they don't know much more about it than that. I mean, I yeah. know for you, you think it's Chariots, but besides that, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, um, but I do think that that plays a large part.
2: No, I think you're right. I mean, I think honestly, Vangelis's score, which he said he wrote because his dad was a runner, so he wanted to write him like an anthem, like the song of his dad. Yeah. In a way, I think it supplants all of our memories of this movie. Even though I, all my memories of this were complete lies. But, like, what is this film if not that score? You know? Yeah, yeah I agree. Do you want to hear uh, Liberace play it at the Oscars? Oh, a
1: uh, million percent, yes.
2: <laughs> okay, here's Liberace. No and I want you to picture him. Um, this is when it wins um, at the Oscars. I want you to picture him wearing, it's kind of like a sequendi polka dot see-through thing with very ruffled sleeves. And he's so excited is. to be there.
5: Although I've stopped making movies. I've never stopped attending them. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, I'm enchanted by the music. I think it's consistently the most original music written today. Mr. Conti, will you help me remind everyone of this year's five nominees, beginning with Chariots of Fire.
2: Also, Paul, because I know that we both love Raiders. This is Liberace continuing his montage and playing
1: Raiders. This is amazing. Oh my God.
2: say so, um when they present the award to uh Vangelis for this score he wasn't there uh because he um is afraid of flying but Liberace made I think the best joke because the actors who opened up the uh envelope were Kathleen Turner and William Hurt because they were in Body Heat yeah and so Liberace is like who better than the people of Body Heat to present the scoring awards uh, <laughs> ugh, yuck <laughs> um So, yes, it was nominated for, what, seven, eight Oscars? It won four of them. It won, like, screenplay. It won picture. I think it was when it won screenplay that the writer came up and grabbed the mic and said the British are coming because he thought this was going to presage a new wave of, like, British films taking over the American box office. That's hilarious. Which I guess happened and didn't happen. Like, Ridley Scott did it, but they didn't Mm -hmm. manage to do it. Although, in the weirdest coincidence... Of the Lawrence of Arabia-ness of all of this, when I was going through and trying to figure out why this felt so Lawrence of Arabia to me, I found out that the director actually did a movie that we've played on the show. He did the sequel to Lawrence of Arabia.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. That what? that one, that, that weird TV one?
2: Yes, yes. He went on and did that years later.
1: Wow, okay.
2: So I think he just always wanted to make a Lawrence of Arabia. Well, anyways. yeah,
1: it definitely it definitely has like that... I mean, it has, like, that kind of scope to it, uh, in a way. Yeah, I buy that. That's interesting. It does.
2: But anyway, one critic in England called BS on this film when it came out. So I will read the review of Peter Ackroyd of The Spectator. He says, There's nothing wrong with displaying the virtues and advantages of England, even if it is only for the benefit of an English audience. But there's something curiously pathetic about doing so in the context of two races run over 50 years ago. Athleticism is a noble ideal, interesting in its own way as intellectual or artistic brilliance, but two short dashes along a sandy track hardly represent the classical spirit in its full (laughs) majesty. The director, Hugh Hudson, compounds the problem by filming each race in slow motion, often with loud and triumphant music in the background, the same technique used for advertising British Leyland cars. And the effect is wearisome. Once you've seen one race in slow motion, you have seen them all. The whole film, as a consequence, becomes winsome and embarrassing, as if someone were trying to sell uplifting pamphlets on the doorstep. Rather pedestrian, terribly sincere, but with a trace of self-satisfaction in that modest and serious manner. It's the sort of film a race of aliens might make, having studied fragmentary records of English social life between the wars. In other words, it is an affirmation of clouded and second-hand values, and as a result, it becomes vulgar. At the performance I attended, the audience were the audience were obviously trying to like it in the same way that they might try and seem respectful at a memorial service for a dead politician.
1: Wow. But I buy that. I buy that I buy that thing. It's like we have to like this. This is telling us an interesting story about our culture and whatever. And I, I buy it. I buy that in wholesale.
2: So you're saying you prefer Ben Cross who played Abraham's, you prefer his other oeuvre, like say when he's Spock's dad in the Star Trek movies?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm I am team Sarek. Uh, I love Sarek. And look, that's one of the CERICs. I mean, there's two uh, I, You know, I don't want to get into my Spock Star Trek <laughs> shit, but, uh, you know, I met one of the Sareks.
2: Oh, but not the Sarek. So you hold it against him.
1: Yeah, look, I'm going to say if I, if I have to call a shot here, I'm going to say, well, like, Mark Leonard is kind of more of my Sarek than Ben Cross. Uh, but, you know, whatever. I'm not going to get into details, but Mark Leonard did the best version of that, in my opinion.
2: Well, I'll let Ben do his rebuttal. I'm returning to Vulcan within the hour.
3: I would like to take my leave of you. It was most kind of you to make this effort.
5: It was no effort. You are my son. Besides, I'm most impressed with your performance in this crisis.
1: Most kind well, Amy, I mean, I guess the question is right now at this point. I mean, I know where I stand on it, but does this go to outer space?
2: Um, no, no. I think that this is a good example of that you just had to be there, Phil, maybe yeah like maybe you just had to be there
1: that was Me- a, that I believe that there's a lot of those movies that just work in this year. It's like it's we're all on board. And you know, those movies go away sometimes, like they come and they go. you know, it's like we, we you know, it's there's that something about the energy around something it makes it you know it makes yeah. it bigger
2: i think even the film itself kind of captures that like the way i feel about this film reminded me of that moment where you're there with the boys as they land in france and they're mm-hmm. like celebrating and there's the ticker tape and everybody's excited and screaming and then the film cuts from that noise of that moment to them re-watching it in a movie theater and yeah. even then at this time it feels smaller it feels more deflated I guess that's how I feel about it. Like this seems like a very cool story and on film I'm like it's fine. Fine.
1: Fine. Capable. Better than capable, but just not my cup of tea.
2: <laughs> wow, of all the British references, that's where you're going to end?
1: I am I am ending there and I'm and I'm and I am uh, taking off my running shoes and looking forward to putting on uh, my baseball shoes well uh, I'm excited about next week's film because next week's film is something that we've been talking about for quite uh, some time and we've saved the best for last before our audience pick which is uh, Penny Marshall's A League of Their Own take a listen to the trailer
4: I'd like to lead you all in a little prayer dear lord may our feet be swift may our bats be mighty may our balls be plentiful and lord I like to thank you for that waitress in South Bend. You know who she is. She kept calling your name. This summer, Tom Hanks is managing the impossible, the Rockford Peaches. Go Peaches! Sound good. So let's all for the girls team. Let's give the coach
1: a break. You're still missing the cutoff man. Now, that's something that I would like you to work on before next season. Because it's. Columbia Pictures would like to take you out to the ballgame. Amy, I know we both are pumped to watch this. I can't wait to see. can't wait to re-watch it. I haven't watched it in years. Uh, And uh, so next week we will end our series here. And look forward to see what the audience picked for their continuation. And I'll let everybody know that if you want to keep this conversation going, I know Amy and I are always trying to find ways to engage and interact with y'all. I have a Discord at discord.gg/paulshear, and there's a small little unspooled group in there uh, that is not like the Facebook group, uh, which is so brilliantly run uh, by uh, Kate Littleton. But I know we that some people Kate. we love Kate. Uh, we know that some people want to maybe you know if you want to have a little bit more of a there's a community on, on my Discord over there, and there's some there's some chat it's not hot and heavy as much as the the facebook one is but trying to always open up different avenues for people to have these conversations so uh thanks so much uh amy anything uh you want to talk about before we go
2: i just want to say i'm feeling good about
1: spring man I like it. I, I am feeling good. I feel like there's a good optimism out in the world right now. Uh, I also want to say, you, if, you, uh, if you like movies, uh, I'm in two right now. Uh, this movie called Happily, which uh, was directed by Ben David Grabinski. It's on uh, VOD. Right now, you can check it out. It's kind of like a Twilight Zone meets like a couple's uh, weekend. It's and, so good. Oh, I'm so happy that you liked it, Amy. It means a lot. And then I'm in a, uh, a documentary called The Last Blockbuster on Netflix, uh, which is all about uh, Blockbuster. And people seem to really, uh, really, really like it. So I'm excited. To be in both, and I'll tell you my Jamie Gertz story there, if uh, if you want. I mean, it's it's there. I mean, you yeah, you could just choose to watch it and the Jamie Gertz stories in it. Uh, well, Amy, uh, we'll see you next week for a League of Their Own.